Hi everyone, thanks for joining us. Um, we're really excited to be hosting this panel talking about the issue of consent. I'm Louise Osborne. And I am Jennifer Collins, and we are the hosts of a new podcast, Flawed, and it's a podcast that looks into the laws on violence against women in Europe. So we've already released our first episode looking into rape legislation in Europe and the fact that many countries still define rape by whether there's been some kind of additional violence or coercion in an assault. Since we released our first podcast, Slovenia has also changed its law to include a definition of consent. But that means there are still only 12 countries in the EU that follow this model. That figure also includes the UK. So these countries have included this definition of consent, but we want to talk about, you know, what does that actually mean? What does it mean to give consent? How do we know if consent is given? What conditions need to prevail for consent? If someone has given their consent at one point, how long does that last for? Yeah, we wanted to look at this issue a little bit more in depth, and we've got a great panel of guests joining us who will uh, talk about consent. Uh, first, we have Emma Pankhurst, one of the founders of the Sex Worker Action Group and a member of a new sex worker union here in Berlin. I believe it's the first in the history of the German capital. Uh, joining us also is Nicole Bogot, who is one of the founders of Conversations on Consent, which is a campaign seeking uh, definitions of consent to be written into uh, national laws. We're also joined by Katie Russell, national spokesperson for Rape Crisis England and Wales, and a specialist in sexual violence against women and girls. And last but not least, Jonathan Herring, a professor of law at Oxford University, specialising in consent in criminal law in the UK. Thank you all for joining us. <laughs> Welcome everybody again to the panel. Um, we'll address our first question. Um, well, we'll open it to everybody, but maybe we'll start with Emma. We were just wondering what consent actually means to you and what, when does it apply? Well, firstly, thank you so much for having me. This um, podcast has sparked some really interesting conversations with my colleagues. Of course, I asked everyone for their opinions and just some, some great chats ensued. Um, I've been saying this to them that I feel like sex workers are the Olympians of consent because we practice it so often and for such extended periods of time in such diverse and challenging circumstances. And I think any sex worker you asked would have uh, different opinions on the subject. So I'll just represent my own opinions and what I've heard in my years of activism and, and sex work. But um, to me, consent, it en encompasses anything that touches the physical body in contact with the emotional mind from invasive surgery to sexual practices to I mean, I was joking the other day, a fly was landing on my shoulder and I was like, I don't consent to you landing on my body. So it, it, it was oddly triggering. So I think one of the issues with consent is that the conception of it needs to be much broader than most people are taught or have really had to consider. And it's interesting because most of my ideas about consent, I hadn't really verbalized until I started to prepare for talking with you all on this podcast, but the word sovereignty really comes to mind. When I'm with a client, for example, I um, feel like my ability to consent ends as soon as I feel like my control over the situation has been lost. And those are the moments that have been really challenging in my career. So that's like the tip of the iceberg. Okay, Katie, you have something that you'd like to add to that? 
Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to start by saying I completely agree with all of that. And the word sovereignty really resonated with me. Um, I think I use autonomy a lot, which is the same in the same kind of vein, I think about bodily autonomy. And I completely agree that consent extends beyond the sexual realm, although it's very clearly defined um, in our law in England and Wales as um, someone consents to sex or sexual activity when they agree by choice, and when they have the freedom and the capacity to make that choice, which I think is a really nice and clear definition that we can apply to lots of other situations um, in relation to our own bodily autonomy and which we can start modeling really with young children even from a sort of pre-verbal age um, and I think that creating that culture in which um, consent is routinely sought and, um, and respected um, other people's right to give their consent to refuse it to change their mind about it and take it back to give it conditionally um, as soon as we start to understand that more broadly in all contexts and include it in our parenting and our education um, and our kind of social norms um, then we'll be a lot further down the line of being able to recognize sexual violence and abuse um, reduce and prevent sexual violence and abuse but also um, you know properly um, get social and criminal justice for victims and survivors of sexual violence and abuse when it does happen okay Jonathan you have something to add yeah, no, I very much agree with what, what Katie and Emma have said. Um, I think it's important to remember when you need to have consent. Um, so when if you're going to do something that's not going to harm someone, you're just going to walk past them, for example, you don't need consent. You need consent when you're going to do something which is going to interfere with their rights or is going to cause them harm. Um, and so in the sexual context, for example, if you're touching someone sexually, that could be a huge invasion of their bodily integrity, of their sovereignty, if you haven't got the consent question right. And that's, uh, I think, key because consent then has a sort of moral magic, as it's been called in the literature. It transforms something that would be very harmful and bad into something very good. But that means that if you need consent, if you're touching someone sexually, you've got to be absolutely sure you've got good enough consent, strong enough consent to mean that that act which would otherwise be harmful can actually be a good deed. Um, so I think asking, has the person who's touching someone sexually shown an attitude of respect towards the other? Um, has made sure that the other does have the freedom to consent and fully understands what they're consenting to uh, is really important when thinking about consent. So, I mean, how do you make sure of that? Um, how clear is consent then written into the law? We should think of the consent as, as a sort of on a scale. We could have consent at one end, which is fully informed, where there's no pressure, someone fully understands everything. That's, if you like, rich consent. That's the richest kind of consent. And at the other end, perhaps you could have consent where someone hasn't voiced opposition, um, is at least is only half aware of what's going on, but they're a bit aware. And, and so some, a lot of the debates are where on this scale do we want consent to be? Um, and for me, it then very much depends on the kind of wrongfulness or harm of the act. Um, consent you need for heart surgery is very different from, say, consent for a haircut. 
But I think given the importance we attach to sexual autonomy and sexual integrity, I'd put consent at, at the higher end um, and be asking whether uh, the person who's touched someone sexually has shown real respect for that other person's autonomy, has helped uh, give them the information they need um, and taken away any threats to ensure there's full consent. Nicole, maybe we can bring you in here on this because you are running a campaign at the moment um, around getting consent defined in the law. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what it is exactly you're doing there and, and what, what that definition is. Um, our campaign um, is also a podcast and um, we have a petition that we're working with uh, Jonathan on as well. Um, and it's called Conversations on Consent because there are a lot of misconceptions when it comes to that word um, and everybody thinks they know what that is uh, and once you start thinking about it and talking about it as Jonathan said out of the sudden there are all these different definitions of what it could be um, and where it could be applied and this is why we thought okay we should have conversations about consent in different contexts whether it's in education or whether it's about um, upskirting or all these different topics in order to look at it from different angles to see what is that actually and where does it apply on the one hand in law but on the other hand also in our daily lives because it is something that does happen across the board even though the severity changes depending on the topic that we're looking at but then when we look at but what what does it actually mean was that consent or was it not consent right now like does information play a role or not right that doesn't in the law it doesn't say anything like that it only says consent which is very vague also when we think of stealthing okay you consent to what like to this action yes but to the other action no right so where is the line it's very blurred right now and that's why we said it shouldn't be blurred because you cannot prosecute in a very blurred environment even though the word we're a fan of the word but we have to define it much more i would say that it's really the the mutual respect of each other's space of self-determination and to award that to each other and if we go deeper into that we need to ask but what is self-determination and we come back to what jonathan has just said can you give a self-determined, are you in a self-determined space if you're being threatened? No. Are you being self-determined if you're being uh, deceived? No, right? And I think if we dig deeper and deeper, deeper into these definitions, it becomes much more clear that consent isn't a yes or no answer. Yes and no campaigns are very important because we're moving away from having to break resistance, which we don't wanna be, uh, in countries, and there are many countries where you have to fight, which you've mentioned before. So it's good that we moved into yes and no, but in reality, life isn't yes or no when it comes, especially when it comes to um, sexual assault and rape. Okay, Katie, um, we'd like to move to you because obviously you work with a lot of survivors of rape. Um, we were just wondering, you know, what difference does it make to them to have consent as a basis for the law? And, you know, what kind of conditions need to be met for consent to be, to have a role, you know, um, with what Nicole was saying, for example, about stealthing and deception? 
Just for to explain to anybody who uh, is in the audience who's not sure what stealthing is, it's when somebody is are using a condom and, and takes the condom off during sex, and then the person who, yeah, the other person doesn't know about it, basically. So, so um, interestingly, I think that the definition we have of consent in England and Wales law, and I should say I'm not a lawyer or an academic, but my understanding of it um, is actually that it already covers a lot of these nuanced scenarios. So it's already very clear that it's not about the words yes or no, um, that it's not about those kind of partial types of consent that Jonathan started by describing, that it is actually about that rich consent that Jonathan described, and that it's certainly not agreement because agreement can be coerced agreements can be made without the full facts, without freedom, without capacity. So those freedom and capacity words are what are key in our law. And the issue that we have is that even the criminal justice agents themselves um, don't seem to apply that law to its full extent. Um, and they're operating on the assumption of the general public's ignorance as well, I think. So I think a lot of prosecution, uh, Crown prosecution decision making, for example, about charging, whether or not to charge, is made on the assumption that juries will hold effectively myths and stereotypes and misunderstandings about rape and consent. But actually, when we work with um, victims and survivors um, at rape crisis centres in England and Wales, um, we do um, exactly that kind of work about self-determination again that Nicole's describing or sovereignty as Emma called it or autonomy as I called it, um, where we, it is actually deeply you know, important to survivors in answer to your question, uh, as we work with them to understand, they might not come to us naming what's happened to them as rape, they just come knowing that they have felt incredibly violated, that they've been traumatized. But when we start to work through what consent actually means, and they come to understand that actually, you know, their consent, that they did not give their consent, um, then they can move to a place beyond self-blame and shame, which is so often um, put on victims and survivors because they think that how they behaved didn't conform to this complete mythical stereotype of what consent looks like because they didn't shout no, because they didn't kick and scream. And actually, you know, um, freezing or flopping the body going limp, those are well-known, you know, neurological, physiological responses to traumatic and fearful experiences, actually. Um, and and they're evidence of, of consent not being given rather than the opposite thing. Um, and because of that freedom capacity word, it's very clear to me that stealthing, for example, is already illegal. Stealthing is a, is a relatively new term, um, you know, in popular culture. But it's very clear, again, in England and Wales law, that when we consent to sex, we do it conditionally. So we might consent to one sexual act, but not another. We might consent with the same partner one minute, but not the next. Um, and we certainly might consent conditionally. So, for example, to sex with a condom, but not without. And as soon as someone... If, some, if you're proceeding with something sexual on the basis of that consent, as soon as someone breaks the... The agreement between you, then they then they've lost that consent. They need to seek it again. You know, consent is a live, living, ongoing concept, not something that we get and then keep like some kind of physical permit to use again and again. Um, Emma, you've been waiting to speak for a little bit now. Um, please, what would you like to comment on? Yeah, um, first of all, uh, off Katie's last point, I just wrote that consent is a verb. 
as in it's a thing that must be actively and continuously practiced. Um, so I love that. I just wanted to add in here, um, I think my lens is slightly different. I'm, I'm fixating on these words, capacity and freedom that keep being used as the precursors for the ability to give consent. Um, significantly to me in the community of sex workers, often we are deprived of even these ideas of capacity and freedom. We are deprived when we are working in a, um, a context where we're exchanging money for sex of the ability to consent as a matter of law. So for example, when I was working in Boston, um, I was not granted the autonomy over my own body to say yes to sex in a way that was legal. That was not my decision. That was a decision that the state removed from me. And having that designation of being consenting illegally, not really consenting was semi-traumatic in and of itself. And it's one of the main reasons I moved to Germany. Um, one of the main things my group is fighting at the moment is the Nordic or Swedish model um, in which the, um, the provider of, of sexual services is not a criminal but the clients always are committing a crime. And this is problematic because it characterizes all clients as aggressors and all um, providers of sexual services as victims. And you know, having the, the term victim ascribed to you in retrospect when you're not doing something that makes you feel victimized is also semi-traumatizing in and of itself. Um, so I think I would like to see us as a, a culture like discuss more um, the conditions under which we can allow people to consent because I consent to my work 100% of the time and most of my colleagues do as well when they're working in conditions that they have a reasonable amount of control over but because of the current laws we have um, sex workers are not granted the autonomy are not considered to have the capacity and are not granted the freedom to consent to their work which is highly, highly problematic. Sorry, Emma, just in terms of sex, you mentioned on the one hand that your kind of consent is taken away in terms of, you know, being able to do your job. But do you also think that for sex workers who then do experience sexual violence, that there's a, maybe not the same recourse to justice because of attitudes around the job? And it's, it's similar, I guess, to, you know, oh, the person had a few drinks and uh, you know, there's a gray area and all these kinds of things. Yeah, so. Yeah, I, I, I also wrote in my notes like short skirt syndrome. Yeah, especially in countries where we're not granted legal status as, as legal workers, um, uh, clients tend to behave more badly because they assume that there's, you know, if, if she's doing sex work, even though it's not legal, can she even really consent does it even matter if she consents like if you know uh, most sex workers i know are terrified of the police because they have a really bad track record with our community so even when we are raped by clients it's really unusual to go to the police i had an experience in paris where it was like this lightning bolt went off inside my brain when it occurred to me that if i went to the police they couldn't arrest me for doing sex work and so I did consider and ended up reporting a client who stealthed me <laughs> and then didn't pay which are two different forms of removing consent conditions of consent after the fact so it was a really dreadful experience but there is this sense yeah that if the if the sex worker really has no recourse to the legal system as most citizens would um then 
the um, violation of her consent is just simply doesn't feel as bad to them. There seems to be some sort of almost loophole psychologically there, which we see a lot of the time. So it's a really, really, really big problem with sexual violence. Actually, I wanted to bring Jonathan in there just in the point you mentioned there about like not, not paying, for instance. So, I mean, we've talked about this idea of kind of you know, deception leading to sex. And in one of your papers, Jonathan, I read you, you talked about a case of a sex worker where they were promised payment and then not given payment afterwards. Yeah. And so I, I kind of wanted to come back to, you know, how we define this idea of, of deception um, within the context of, of consent. Perhaps you could say a little bit more about that. Yes, I think one of the, it reflects a sort of bigger problem uh, in the criminal justice system in this area, which is when we're looking at consent, the focus tends to be on the victim uh, and saying to the victim, well, did you demonstrate clearly you didn't consent? Um, or if you were saying you were frightened, were you frightened enough not to consent? Or in answer to your question, if you were deceived, were you deceived badly enough to mean there was no consent? But I think the focus should be on the defendant who's saying, well, look, if you have used a lie to get a consent, how can you um, how can you rely on that consent as good enough to do an invasion of bodily integrity? Uh, if you threaten someone, how can you then seek to rely on that threat that occurred as a result? Um, so I think we need to shift the focus away from asking, if you like, what did the defender, did the victim make their non-consent clear enough to asking, well, did the defendant do enough to make sure they had proper rich consent? And where they've lied and got consent as a result, um, to me, uh, they can't possibly uh, have, uh, be relying on consent as a defense. Um, so imagine a man, for example, having sex with a woman, knowing in his mind, it's a good thing that she doesn't know about this. It's a good thing I lied about this fact or she wouldn't be agreeing. He's showing a complete lack of respect for her sexual autonomy. And I think he would be rightly convicted of rape. Okay, but coming back to that, I mean, how bad do you think that the lie has to be for it to be considered rape? Well, the problem is at the moment, the judge gets to decide or the jury gets to decide, was the deception bad enough for consent? Um, but I think that's completely wrong. It's for the victim to decide whether this issue was important enough to them. We all have different things that, we, that matter to us about sex, um, but it's not for one person to say to another, well, you care about this issue, but I just think it's trivial. Um, I think for a judge to say that to a victim or for the law to say to that to a victim, let's say they've got a, a religious reason for uh, there being a precondition to their consent, for the law to turn around and say well, that's just a trivial matter. Um, so I think the simple question should be, would the victim have consented if they'd known the truth? Uh, and if, if they would not have consented, uh, then the law should uphold their right to, uh, for them to decide what happens to their body and under what conditions. Okay, Katie, what do you think about that? I was just vigorously agreeing with most of it, really, but <laughs> I just wanted to, um, yeah, come back to this point about um, being more 
suspect focused as the, as the sort of legal parlance goes in terms of investigation in the criminal justice process, because there was a point um, a number of years ago where the Crown Prosecution Service had decided that it was going to, you know, make the 2003 Sexual Offences Act actually work and train its prosecutors to actually question defendants and suspects about how they sought consent and how they were confident that they'd received consent. And, you know, in a working system, if they can't answer that question adequately, they are effectively admitting that to the crime of rape or, or some form of sexual violence, depending on what the act was. And, um, and the, the CPS at some point abandoned that direction um, and it's a fundamental failure of justice and what we have instead is a system that's really predicated on the idea that people but women in particular routinely lie about rape and sexual violence for petty reasons like revenge or regret because they've cheated on their boyfriends or for money um, and anyone who knows anything about the the trauma of the criminal justice process, let alone the trauma of sexual violence and abuse, knows how ludicrous that notion is, that that would be a common thing. Of course, you know, occasionally people lie about being victims of all sorts of different kinds of crime, but actually there is a, a widely held myth that it's routine, that it's common for people to lie about sexual violence and abuse in particular, and this is part of what stops us having an effective criminal justice system. Um, and it's entirely right that we should be listening more to victims and survivors when they say, you know, had I known that this person was an undercover police officer, for example, I would not have consented to a sexual relationship with them, and that should be enough. Yeah, I just want to bring Nicole back in on this one because, um, you know, we're talking about one of the parts of the campaign is like, you know, conversations around this. And um, we're talking about, you know, people making sure they have consent, like how can people make it, you know, ensure that? Yeah, um, that is the million dollar question that everybody asks, right? How can we practice consent? I think is what you're asking, right? Um, but also when we talk about talking about getting consent, I just want to make that a little side note, again, like defining that word more, um, I think makes it also easier for people to realize if they're, if they could give consent or not. When it comes to practicing consent, um, I'm very um, excited actually that we were able to um, interview um, Sarah Kasper, who is a consent educator. What she has shared with us, and I cannot remember where, uh, what source she cited actually who that is, uh, who, who proposed this is, if you don't know someone, um, you have to really talk a lot, right? To really make sure you understand where they're coming from and provide that space, um, even if it's awkward or, you know, just double, triple check everything in the beginning if you don't know someone. Um, but if you are, let's say, in a long term relationship, she was suggesting the opt in, opt out model. So if you know someone and you already know, oh, they like stroking their hair or whatever, you kind of agree that stroking their hair is really nice unless I opt out because somehow I don't want it right now, right? Um, she proposes models like that and there are more people going into it. And I think when it comes to children and families, it's also really something that we need to, again, like we need to allow each other spaces also not to know. So right now we always want this quick result, right? Do you like me or not? Uh, do you want to move forward or not? And sometimes we don't know for a moment and, you know, and we, we should allow that moment of just 
being there and kind of stopping and 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 then seeing maybe we continue later or maybe not and not to see everything as a now or never i think sometimes we don't have a reason also that we don't want something and i think that's also very important uh, to mention sometimes we have clear guidelines and we're like i don't want uh, i don't want to have sex without a condom for instance maybe that's our rule and that's we don't even think about it but then sometimes it doesn't feel right and that should also be fine i think like one of the things I guess we talk about and I think it's like a, maybe like a, a often a cultural thing too I mean you mentioned like having that space to have these conversations and and to kind of you know check you know check in with the person and, and really talk about this stuff you know there's this whole idea of like consent being like a mood killer somehow or that it's you know we have ideas of like gender stereotypes about um how they you know interact in these in these scenarios I don't know if anybody wants to weigh in on on that yeah, I, I think I was thinking about that, actually, and you've, and you've jogged my memory <laughs> as Nicole was talking, you know, this idea about um, about in relationships and, you know, having to justify why we do or don't want something. Um, we need to, again, through education and um, and we need to shift the whole culture so that we're not um, we're not coming from a from a point of view of, you know, someone wants to justify why they don't want sex with their partner or why they they don't want to do this and that and where we we get to a position where if you're in doubt about whether your sexual partner is really willing and up for it whether they're actually too drunk to consent to you today or whether they're um they're feeling a bit pressured and they're just you know and they're doing it to make you happy or you know we should we should be starting from a premise of if in doubt leave it alone and I think there is a lot of gender stereotyping that comes in because we've got this notion that um that men have like more sexual desire than women which I personally think is nonsense but also that they're not able to um control their sexual desires um and their sexual behaviors and that is that is that is nonsense you know that is something that we've created in this patriarchal culture in order to excuse bad male behavior um and it and it perpetuates this this difficult culture in which we find ourselves I had a colleague years ago who used to say you know if you if you want to understand what a lie the whole he'd started so he couldn't finish um narrative actually is just imagine that his grandma had walked into the room and you could be sure that <laughs> that he would be able to stop himself then so someone saying no or obviously not being into it you know should have the same effect okay emma you'd like to weigh in there yeah i'm just first of all i'm really enjoying this conversation it's making me feel very yummy um I'm asking myself as we're talking, like, how do I know if clients are consenting? Because there are often times when I've seen, I've, <laughs> I've even um, taken a few virginities in my time, um, professionally, you know, and personally. And I realize that I practice consent actively both directions, which I think most sex workers do as well. Like it's, I think it's probably pretty rare for a client of a sex worker to be traumatized by the experience, but it can absolutely happen. There's so much vulnerability involved. And so I'm just asking myself how I know if the client is consenting. And um, I'm realizing that it's, it's, it's a, a multifaceted thing, right? If you, well, one of the reasons I think sex workers are so proficient at this is that they learn to pick up on body language extremely, extremely precisely. Like, it's like we have this, some sort of extra signal. Um, 
and I wrote down, um, every action begins as a question, which I kind of like as a phrase that people can steal all they want and, 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 and use because when I'm with a client and I'm not sure, I mean, I think this is another reason that sex workers are like the, the, the super women and, and men of consent is like, we make everything sexy like it never has to be um, a mood killer. Like, like I could say, how are you doing? You know, <laughs> like, how are you doing with this? Are you doing okay? And it's just a matter of inflection and voice. And, um, and there's a lot of verbal questioning, but there's also physical questioning. Like when you start a kiss, you start slowly. When you start touching someone, you start slowly. And then you pause a moment and wait for the reaction. And then you use all of your senses. Sometimes even your sense of smell becomes relevant to figure out if that person feels safe in that moment. And if they feel like they still have control over their own body, or if sometimes they feel like they've lost that control. And um, yeah, I think it's equally relevant to men as to women. And especially because I'm a very powerful woman. So I think a lot of times, sometimes men feel overwhelmed and like it would be shameful for them to say stop, but I very consciously make space for that. So hopefully that's helpful to like give my um, I think Jonathan wanted to weigh in. Um, I, was, I was just going to bring in the, the incel movement, uh, particularly uh, in the United States. And uh, as you probably know, that's the, the sort of group of men who feel they have some sort of human right to have sex and that to uh, not be able to find a sexual partner is, is a sort of breach of their rights. And it, it somehow breeds this sort of hatred, particularly of, of women. And I think there are surprisingly elements of that. And it goes back, I think, to a bit what Nicole, uh, Nicole was saying, that um, perhaps a man feels, well, I've gone to all this effort, uh, now I should be entitled to have sex, and, um, uh, and, and not being willing to say, well, perhaps actually tonight's not the right moment, or actually uh, it, I'm, I'm not sure she's fully consenting, so let's, let's wait to another time. Um, but this sort of drive that it's some sort of basic right, I think it's a rather dangerous sort of idea. I just wanted to ask the panel, what needs to change in society so that this all becomes a little bit easier and so that, you know, maybe these conversations aren't even needed anymore? Obviously, there's an imbalance of power between men and women, and between um, yeah, between rich and poor, and between other um, groups in society. And when when it comes to consent, it plays very much into this power imbalance, right? So you have an imbalance of information, or you have an imbalance of control, or right there's somehow an imbalance where not both people can participate equally, and one person is driving that, and the other person then usually feels bad because they somehow were abused in, in a sense, right? So something that I think we need to really advocate for and get people excited about is power sharing. Power sharing, I think would be great and also creating more intimacy and to really wanting to get to know each other would help with consent. Emma, I mean, in uh, your work as a sex worker, I mean, obviously there is quite a complex um, power dynamic there. Um, maybe you want to comment a little further. So many things. I wish this panel was like five hours long. It's really hard. <laughs> um, yeah, there, there are a number of things. One thing that I think we should definitely fix is, you know, 
um, I came out to my parents as a sex worker last year. And um, <laughs> I think intergenerational discussions of sex are profoundly painful and perhaps even for a particularly good reason. Um, my father is a psychologist and worked with a lot of victims of incest in his career. And so when it came to raising me, um, sex, cannot could not for him be part of the conversation between him and I so it was like really uniquely not discussed in um growing up and I know that that was a problem for my brother when it came for him time for him to start um his life as an active sexual person and and was quite problematic so if we can find a way to be more comfortable with sex as a culture I think that would just absolutely benefit everyone I I find that my one of my theories about a lot of these um, anti-sex work laws is like, it's just, you know, you think about the populations of people who usually make up governments and talking about, you know, a bunch of old men sitting around talking about sex is just not a good look. And so therefore sex work laws just either don't get passed or get passed in a horribly knee-jerk way where it's like, oh God, this one lobbying group that made a lot of noise says this thing and okay, I guess we'll just go with that because Ugh, who, how can we possibly debate this? This is too uncomfortable. So I think if we became more comfortable discussing sex, like for example, there's a huge difference in that between my experience living in the US versus my experience in Germany. And in Germany, sexuality is just far more culturally acceptable and you know, France as well. And it makes all the difference in the world when it comes to people asking for what they need and discussing things openly. Like some of my German and French clients, I'm just amazed by how verbal they are feel okay being, which is extremely different from a lot of my American clients, particularly in the Puritan capital of the US, Boston, um, which was very notable. Um, and then I, I cannot leave this discussion without mentioning for the sake of like, all of my colleagues would be furious with me if I didn't mention that um, we feel that capitalism is coercive and sex work is just our remedy. So a lot of people say like, oh, you're coerced into having sex with your clients because the money is involved. And my answer to that is no, capitalism coerces us all to work even if we don't want to. And sex work is my remedy for that imbalance. Um, and it would be wonderful if men could share power. <laughs> that would be really excellent. That would help with a lot of things because another one of my pet theories about why sex work is so often illegal is because the idea of women using an innate feature of their bodies as a tool of upward economic mobility is um, an existential threat to the patriarchy. And um, it is, yeah, it's a really exhausting paradigm to continually fight. So yes, if we could talk about everything more and and uh, look at capitalism and see if we can maybe <laughs> look at other models of, of surviving as a species. Katie, I think you had something that you'd like to add. Oh, I just wanted to say, yeah, smash the patriarchy, smash capitalism. Yes, <laughs> definitely agree with that. I mean, I, it was just, uh, uh, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with, with everything that's been said. But I think, you know, um, back to the, to the question of, of what can we do, I think we have to start by not shying away from um, what the problem is and and you know Emma mentioned it the, pro the problem really is patriarchy and um, and the fact that we're not um, prepared to discuss the fact that the overwhelming majority of sexual violence is being perpetrated 
by men. Um, so we think about, because this is happening disproportionately to women and girls, we think about sexual violence as a women and girls problem, violence against women and girls as a women and girls problem. But really, arguably, it's a men's problem um, because the men are the ones who are doing it for the you know for the most part um so uh, we have to take collective responsibility we have to not shy away from the statistics and the reality um from the reality of the trauma of sexual violence and abuse the lifelong impact that it has on victims and survivors and yeah i i think it's true that um you know interconnected with that entirely is being able to talk as emma says more openly um about sex in general um if um if genuine sex education not just like you know, the physical parts of your body and periods and putting condoms on bananas, but actual, you know, the, the realities of sexual relationships, um, consent and, um, and respect, as Jonathan has mentioned many times, you know, were, um, were taught in schools from the earliest possible age, were part of the national conversation, um, then we'd go some way, I think, to starting to tackle this problem. It, it, it sounds really kind of pie in the sky, but we, we're talking about no less than cultural shift and systemic change. So that needs an holistic wholesale approach. Um, it needs government investment, absolutely. It needs expert input from people like us on this panel today, um, but from also victims and survivors themselves, the people who know best, uh, those who, who are talking as victims and survivors and have been through this. It also needs uh, investment and involvement from everyone. Okay, um, we have a question from the attendees. So I'm just gonna break out for, for that for the moment. Um, Alex, would you like to ask your question to the panel? Yeah, my question was, uh, I had many. Um, how can we practice sharing the power? I think the first thing that we really need to do is to get comfortable with the concept of power. I have a lot of people around me that think power is a bad thing. And I think the reason is because a lot of people have experienced control over their bodies or in other ways that made them uncomfortable. So they're like, eh, I don't wanna get involved. And I understand that, but power in and of itself is neither positive nor negative. It can be anything and it's interpreted in different ways depending on who you ask, right? And the second thing maybe just quickly to add is to really think of power in the, in the form of space. Because if we have a space, again, like to pause, for instance, or a space to just for ourselves to make our own decision and to be determined, I think we have to really under like an invisible shield or, that everybody should have, like a minimum of space that everybody should be allowed to have and also ourselves. Um, we just had a question from Rachel. Um, I'm just going to read it out. She said she's really interested in what Emma said about the puritanical narratives in Boston and that got her wondering what kind of reception we see in political discussion more broadly. Do the panelists tend to find that left-wing politicians are more progressive on this issue or does a discomfort in talking about consent across the political. I would hop in um, just briefly to say that sadly and surprisingly in my experience um, there doesn't seem to be uh, that much um, clear uh, variety um, certainly in in UK politics um, you know th there's not the, the clear divide that you might imagine between the sort of left and, and right wing of politics um, there are surprising individual MPs and ministers who've wanted to talk about sexual violence and abuse and proper support for victims and survivors um, and 
and they've been from from all parties actually um but overall there's there's not enough nearly enough political will um to solve um you know the absolute crisis that there is particularly in terms of criminal justice for victims and survivors um but also in terms of you know levels of sexual violence and abuse in general Okay, um, we have another question from uh, Kate. Kate, would you like to ask your question? Hi, thank you all very much. I'm really enjoying this discussion as well. It's fascinating. Um, I noticed that a lot of the conversation around consent focuses on power dynamics between heterosexual couples. And I'm wondering if any of you find that the nuances and the approaches within the LGBTQ community are any different when it comes to this topic. Really want to let other people speak, but I'm finding myself hopping <laughs> in again. I mean, you're right that that absolutely, you know, these conversations do end up falling back to um, uh, talking about heterosexual uh, relationships, and um, that's you know that's partly because of the um, the you know the issues that we've already discussed in terms of um, perpetration and um, and those who experience sexual violence and abuse the most. I would say um, you know you're completely right that um, we we need to be better at um, you know being more inclusive and all-encompassing when we're having these conversations. I think the principles of um, of consent um, of seeking it and bodily autonomy and sovereignty and respect are um, absolutely the same, you know, regardless of the sex or gender of, or identity of any of the parties involved. Um, but I do think that um, what Jonathan was saying actually about um, recognizing, you know, more of a variety of sexualities and sexual acts is quite relevant here because um, I think we do have a problem. Um, and again, it goes back to Emma's point about needing to discuss sex bit more um, that um, we assume when we say sex that we're just talking about a very conventional type of penis and vagina penetrative sex um, and there are of course many many more and different types of sex than that um, and if we were comfortable to um, talk about that and acknowledge that more um, you know I think it would be very positive for this and, and in many other ways too. Okay, we just have a couple more questions. Um, one from Marta, uh, directed to Emma. So she says, thank you for this conversation. Uh, Emma, thank you for such clear explanations of the arguments that frame sex work as a challenge against the patriarchy. I had not really thought about the criminalization of clients as limiting the authority of one's own body from the perspective of a sex worker. Really helpful to hear this. I do wonder whether we would need more work on combating the idea that consent can be bought. Uh, is it an issue for the sexual autonomy of women in general? People have the most freedom and agency when they're granted the greatest amount of rights. Um, when sex work, this is extraordinarily important and I'm glad to have the chance to speak to it. When sex work is criminalized in any form, whether it be um, buyer side criminalization, which also affects sex workers because it drives the entire industry into the darkness. There's a whole slew of laws that goes with it that really, really punish sex workers. And the, basically it's indicating that the entire society just hates sex work, but they find it sort of squishy and unpalatable, this idea that you want to um, imprison the women for doing this work out of probably desperation is the assumption that's made. So. Um, Notwithstanding people like me who don't do this work out of desperation, but do it out of A, economic necessity, and B, 
pleasure and it's just my calling and my vocation and I genuinely enjoy it and find it very interesting and fulfilling. Um, when people have the most options and the most rights over their own body, I think we can all agree that the outcomes are just generally better for everyone. So the way we feel about it is, um, please don't make laws to protect us based on an extraordinarily stigmatized version and an extremely limited definition of femininity and sexuality. Um, women should, be ha should have the freedom to do whatever the fuck they want with their body. This is extraordinarily important. This is the basis of feminism. And anyone who doesn't believe that a woman should be able to do anything she wants with her body, include it and use it to make money, is not a feminist in my book. Okay, so those are all the questions. Thank you so much to all of you for taking part and for staying with us. We think it's been an amazing conversation. It's been really interesting. Thank you for your time. Um, yeah, thanks again, for everybody, for joining us. Um, and you can also find the details of our uh, great panelists today on our Instagram and Twitter channels in case you want to follow them and follow their work. Okay. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. This was great. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we just hang up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, let me just see if I can... Thanks for listening to our panel on consent. Uh, this episode was produced by me, Jennifer Collins, and Louise Osborne. And the music you heard was Sita's song by Siddhartha Corsus. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to our podcast. And if you're listening on Apple Podcast, please rate it or leave us a review. Our next episode will be available in the next month. Until then, please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at flawed underscore pod.